invite us when they wrong us. This passage that we just read, the story of the Good Samaritan, is a passage that calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The lawyer said it himself. That's the the, the essence of true piety. According to Jesus, our love for our neighbors, and he's going to define for us who our neighbors are, and he's going to define for us what love is, this is the litmus test of our souls. So I, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus. I, I, I profess to have faith and, and trust in Jesus. The question is, do you love your neighbor as yourself? It's the indicator of our standing before God. It's the standard of our holiness. It is the proof of our regeneration. There's many, many people in our world today who would say, I, I'm a believer in Jesus. I've been born again. In fact, a majority of people in the United States claim to be born again. The question is, do you love your neighbor as yourself? That is the proof. Now, let me be very clear. We do not get saved by loving our neighbor. Rather, loving our neighbor is the evidence that we are saved. One of the signs that you are a believer in Jesus is you're going to be growing in love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Love for God, which in turn generates and fuels love for our neighbor. So move through this text. It's a very simple outline today. We're going to have basically two parts. We're going to see the lawyer's questions, and then we're going to see the Savior's answers. Uh, I, I think that, that divides the text quite nicely. So let's dive, here, dive in here in verse 25. I want you to have your Bibles open because we're going to look to the text. I want to remind you that what I'm saying today is not my opinion. This is not the teaching just of our church. But this is the teaching of God's word, of the, the written word of God, the Bible. So verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up. And tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when we read lawyer, we think of some guy with a uh, a black suit on who's got his face plastered on a billboard saying, Call me Alabama. That's not the idea we should have. Um, Which, by the way, that billboard drove me nuts because there needed to be a comma. Call me, comma, Alabama. Without the comma, he's saying, Hey, everyone, call me Alabama. I'm like, Hey, Alabama, good to see you. Um, Now, you'd think if you're going to put a billboard all over the state, you'd get your grammar right. But anyway, I digress. When we read lawyer here, don't think sort of secular lawyer who goes into courtrooms. This guy is an expert in Jewish law. He is a religious expert. These are guys who are called scribes elsewhere. They devoted their lives to the study of the Torah. They knew those first five books forward and backwards. They knew how to interpret it and how to apply it. So here's the guy who's the Ph.D. in theology, if you will. He's the seminary professor. He's the Bible scholar. He's the guy who would be on National Geographic when they're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here he stands up. Maybe think of a setting like this where there's teaching occurring and Jesus finishes his lesson. And he stands up and says, Jesus, I have a question. Now, his question is is an excellent one. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I cannot think of a more important question to ask. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? We, we have eternal souls that will spend somewhere forever. And there is no more pressing question than where will you spend eternity? Every one of us must confront that question. And let me tell you, most people spend their whole lives running from that question, filling their lives with noise and entertainment and things and distractions, avoiding just being alone and being in silence where you are forced to confront The reality that I just have a few brief decades on this earth and then one day I will step off the cliff into eternity. What will be on the other side of the grave? Great question. By the way, this question gets asked of Jesus many times. This was a very common question in the the, the first century. People wanted to know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? 
This is a perennial question. This is a weighty question. And I would put the question to you. Where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. And one thing that is guaranteed to every one of us, it's said there's nothing more certain in life than death and taxes. And we are going to face our own mortality eventually. As much as we don't want to think about it, where will you spend eternity? Now, his question, that's a dishonest question. It says he's tempting Jesus. On the face, it seems like a very honest question. He's standing up. He's very respectful. Rabbi, what do I need to do? It's a a common question. It's a serious question, but it's asked with the wrong motive. You see, his desire is not to actually have his question answered, but is to make Jesus look foolish. The, the, the religious elite and Jesus were always at odds with each other, which, by the way, is a reminder that simply being religious does not mean that you are right with God. Right? Simply going to church and praying prayers and doing religious things does not mean that you are right with God. Jesus' most hostile enemies were the religious elite. Here's this religious guy who's, who's trying to make Jesus look foolish. And there's sort of a basic premise in this question that's flawed. What shall I do?
of iron what belongs to the living person. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus works that out because if you your anger, your hatred towards your brother without cause, you're guilty of breaking it. Yeah, I love my neighbor, but I get really angry at him sometimes. You do not love your neighbor. Here's the here's the point. This standard, oh, it seems so simple. Love God, love your neighbor. But it's intensive. Now what we have in verse 27 is a quote from the Old Testament. That's in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Put together and say, this is the summary of what God requires. Now, Jesus responds in verse 28. He says then, thou hast answered right. Because your answer is orthodox. That's the Greek word, orthos. It is straight. It is down the line. Right answer. This do and thou shalt live. The answer is spot on. It's correct. But Jesus does not notice. He does not merely affirm the rightness of his answer. He demands the obedience of his soul. It's right. Okay, you understand what the standard is now. Go out and do that. He's thrown off by Jesus' brilliantly simple answer. Um, the, the lawyer here comes to try to make Jesus look like an idiot, and now he himself is actually looking like an idiot. He's asked a question, and then Jesus is like, uh, you have the answer yourself. Um, it's like when a student will ask a teacher, I used to teach for a while, and you tell your class there's no such thing as a dumb question, and then you realize, yeah, there kind of is the one that you can answer yourself. When you tell the students, okay, there's going to be a test on March 15th, uh, when's the test going to be? Like, 
Okay, I just gave you the answer to that, right? That's one of those kinds of questions, like see the syllabus. It's right there in bold, underlined, starred. It's highlighted. So the guy looks kind of dumb, so he, he tries to get Jesus into an arcane discussion. Who is my neighbor? This is interesting. In Jesus' day, the religious elite had defined, they read the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, and then come along and defined a neighbor so narrowly that they could pat themselves on the back and say, I'm doing that. I got that. Right? I'm, I, I, I'm, doing this, I'm doing a good job with it. The question reveals a very subtle assumption. Who then is my neighbor? It means that there's a standard of neighborness that someone must meet before I love them. That's what this guy's question is implying. That This isn't for everyone, just some people I need to love. The religious elite of Jesus' day excluded tax collectors. Yeah, we shouldn't love them. They're pretty bad. Prostitutes shouldn't love them. They're pretty bad. They, they're not owed neighbor love. Gentiles, man, they're, they're a bunch of pagan-worshipping, idol-worshipping weirdos. We shouldn't love them. And then, of course, Samaritans. We definitely don't love Samaritans. They were excluded from the rank of neighbor. They define neighbor as just fellow Jews, and if you're a Pharisee, just someone else who was a Pharisee. Just someone who thinks like me. I love them, but not anyone else. A passage of scripture, that, or not scripture, but of, of literature that was written around the time of Jesus. It's called the book of Sirach. It's in the, in the Apocrypha. It says this. This kind of expresses the attitude. It says, give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them, for by means of it they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good you have done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. That was the attitude of the religious establishment of Jesus' day. Only help people who deserve your help. Only help people who are good. Don't help people who are bad. God hates people who are bad. You don't want to help them out because, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. If you do a good thing to them, then they'll really come back and get you. That was the attitude that this guy had. You can't help but hear kind of a twinge of pain of conscience. Who then is my neighbor? There's kind of a sense of worry that, what about that obnoxious guy who was in the line at the temple last week that, 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 I, that I yelled at and had a bad attitude towards? Maybe he's sort of thinking back to that beggar that he passed by and, and did not assist. Maybe he's thinking about the, the man back in his synagogue that that he had lied to or been deceptive to and then justified in his own mind that he really was okay. What he is hoping Jesus will do is define neighbor in such a way that he's off the hook. Now, don't we all do the same thing? We kind of have a mental criteria of people who are like us that we like them and the people who are not like us that we don't like. So someone who looks like me and comes to church with me, sure, I'll love them. But man, that person who I run into in the Walmart parking lot who's from another country, dresses differently, kind of suspicious of them. Uh, that, that person who votes just like me, yeah, we're, we're, on the, we're, on, we're in the good books, man. If you vote differently than me, I have no time for you. That's kind of the attitude. I mean, and if you don't believe this, jump onto Twitter sometime. Like the, the, the sort of the scorched earth hatred for people who are different uh, suggests to me that we as Christians are doing exactly what this man has done. Oh, yes, I love humanity, but it's Democrats I can't stand. I love humanity, but it's Republicans I can't stand. I love humanity, but man, Muslims? Ugh. Humanity is humanity that I love, but someone who is an immigrant from another country? I'm not going to love them or help them. 
You see, we, we all begin to do this. We love those who love us. We love those who are like us. What Jesus calls us to is an infinitely higher standard, one that condemns every single one of us in this room. Let's come into the second part of this, as Jesus now gives his answer. So there's the question. There's two questions. How do I earn eternal life? And who's, who's my neighbor? Who do I owe neighbor love to? Jesus now gives his famous answer. This is perhaps one of the fam- most famous stories ever told, the story of the Good Samaritan. Which I'm like, man, what a bland title, right? Just the Good Samaritan. Like, this is an amazing story. It is compelling. And I think our familiarity with this sometimes gets in the way of our understanding just how offensive this story was. So I want us to, just for a second, pretend you have never heard this story before. And let's go ahead and put on our first century sandals and try to go back to the world of the Bible and understand what a rhetorical punch in the gut this would have been to the lawyer. All right, so Jesus answering said, the idea answering there is he's going to take up a response. He's going to, going to, to, to answer this question directly with a shocking and deeply offensive story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, departed, leaving him half dead. This was a common enough occurrence. Notice he says goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about a 3,000-foot decline in just 17 miles. So you're going on this winding road through the desert, on this, the, 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 the hills just pocketed with caves. And Josephus tells us that there were a lot of brigands and, and murderers and criminals who would hide out in those caves and wait for the opportunity to ambush people. So Jesus, this is a very realistic story that he's telling. So a guy's walking down this, this deserted stretch of road. He's ambushed by a bunch of thieves. Now, it's interesting that he does not tell us anything about the ethnicity or the religious commitments of this man. Probably the lawyer would assume, well, he's a fellow Jew, right? They're just going to assume he's in Jerusalem. Here he goes down to Jericho, walking down the road. He's someone just like me, but Jesus does not tell us what this man is like. So he fell among thieves. Notice what they did. They stripped him of his raiment. Someone's clothing in the ancient world was one of the most valuable pieces of possession, uh, property that they had. So he... It would be like today, they, they, they carjacked him, they went off with the Cadillac Escalade, they stole his wallet, they took his credit card, stole his identity, and left him on the side of the road. They strip him of his raiment, they wound him, I mean, they beat the daylights out of him. This is a very, very violent word. He's ambushed, he's beaten, and then they just dump him unceremoniously in the ditch, half dead. Because here's this guy lying naked on the side of the road, bleeding, bruised, completely out of it, everything he has taken from him, his livelihood taken from him. So here he is lying sprawled out on the jagged roadway, baking in the sun, oozing wounds, covered in dirt, and without help, there's nothing that he has to look forward to except an agonizing death out in the sun. I can't think of a worse way to die, just be abandoned on the side of the road to die in the 120-degree heat. And all the while knowing, being aware of the fact that you are dying. That sounds horrible. It sounds terrifying. But just then, in that moment when all hope seems to be lost, a stroke of good luck happens. Right? This, is, this is probably the best thing that could happen to him. Look at verse 31. And by chance, just a happenstance, this is amazing, a, someone comes by. There came down a certain priest. 
This is good news. The priests knew God's law. If anyone knew, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It was the priest. He's the guy who teaches this to everyone. If there was anyone who should have a sense of compassion, it would be the priest. If there was anyone who should be aware of the need and ready to help and having the resources to help, it would be the priest. It would be like saying the, the, the local Baptist pastor came by, oh, good, someone's going to finally help this guy. Here's a guy. He knows God's law. He teaches God's truth. This heightens our expectation. People hearing the story would be like, hey, the guy fell on the road. A priest comes and helps him. Be like the priest. Priests are good guys. We like priests. The lawyer would have probably been friends with priests. So the priest sees our helpless victim. Notice how the story goes. And when he saw him, okay, that's good. He sees. He's aware. It's not that he's unaware of the need. He sees the need. He passed by on the other side. What a letdown. And we know what happens. The priest comes. He sees and he leaves. He passes by. The Levite who comes in verse 32 does the same thing. Priests were from the, from the tribe of Levi, but they were a specific family. The Levites were the ones who were, I don't know, if we want to think in modern terms, were maybe like the deacons. They're the ones who would, you know, would take care of the temple grounds and sing in the temple choirs. But here's a guy who is part of the local church. He sings in the choir. He teaches Sunday school. And here he comes back. Surely he'll help him. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, so notice a little change in the language. He actually comes right up to this body and sees here he is sprawled out here on the roadway. Maybe he'll help. And he sees him. When he had saw, when seen him, he passed by on the other side. So there's a cadence. They came, they saw, they left. Not they came, they saw, they conquered. They came, they saw, and they passed over, went on the other side of the road. Why? Maybe they figured this is a trap. Maybe the, you know, the, the, the criminals have left the body to lay out here. Someone comes to help, and then they'll pounce, and you'll be another victim. Maybe there's sort of a sense of excessive piety that, oh, I don't want to contaminate my, my holy status by touching a, a, a partially almost dead body. We don't know. But the people who were the religious elite, the ones who should have known better, the ones who would have been most similar to the lawyer, do the least. Their high-minded high spiritual devotion did not lead to low-level practical assistance. What a damning expose of our own hearts. Here we are in church on a Sunday morning. We've gathered. How readily do we step out to meet needs around us? Uh, let me be really honest with you. When, when, I, when I hear about needs, often my thought is, mm, what's, the, what's the catch? What's the scam? And I get we do, it to be, we do have to be careful. We do have to be aware of what is the real need, and often the present, presented need is not the real need. I get all that. But how often do we just shut our hearts off from the pain and the heartache in the world around us? How much sooner would we rather just retreat into our own little world? And just, I'm just going to read the Bible while ignoring what is going on around us. How, much would we ra- how often would we rather just have a good friendship with the guy at work than meet the real need of his heart, which is for Jesus Christ? And just shut our minds off to the, the lostness of the world around us. The ones who had theological knowledge, who had exegetical accuracy and right opinions were the ones who did nothing. You see, you might pride yourself this morning on saying, I've got right theology. I subscribe to the Confession of Faith, the Cloverleaf Baptist Church, or the Westminster Confession, or whatever it is. That's good, and it is important. I am by no means downplaying the importance of believing what the Bible says. We should not do less. But our belief in who God is should lead us to love like God has loved. Now, verse 33 brings us to the turning point in the story. But 
A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. We read this because we know the story. Oh, yeah, the good Samaritan. The way this is put together, the word Samaritan is put right at the front of the sentence in Greek. But a Samaritan, now that would have been immediately, that was, that was the group of people that the, the, Jewish, the Jewish lawyers like this guy would have hated the most. If there was anybody who was sort of excluded from the, 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 the ranks of neighborness, it would be the Samaritans. They were half-breeds in their mind. They were spiritual apostates. They had a very sordid history. They believed a bunch of wrong stuff. They were regarded as compromised. They were people that they would be like, you don't have anything to do with these guys. We've seen this in past weeks. By bringing in a Samaritan at this point, Jesus would have absolutely flabbergasted his audience. We're so familiar with the phrase, the good Samaritan. You even see it in the news story. A good Samaritan stopped by to assist somebody and then such and such happened. But to a Jewish audience... A good Samaritan is an oxymoron, right? It, to them, it's like a, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan would have been the mentality. The audience would have heard, uh-oh, a Samaritan has shown up. That's it for this guy. The, the robbers got him, the, the, the priest and the Levite, they, they ignored him. The Samaritan's going to finish the guy off. That's what they would have expected. The Samaritan, to most people, would say, here's now the ultimate villain who is going to just go up and steal whatever little left this man has. That would have been the assumption. Now, Jesus heightens the sense of anticipation by following the cadence. We have came, saw, passed over, came, saw, passed over. But verse 33, we have came, saw, had compassion. Now, and that is like a, a, a lightning bolt of, of just shock to Jesus' audience. Samaritans are bad people. In fact, they would maybe expect a priest a Levite, and then a Jewish layman, right? You'd be like, well, a pastor, now a deacon, now a church member. But Jesus goes, pastor, deacon, and guy from the local mosque. Like that, that's sort of the force. Like that's not the one that we would expect to show neighbor love. And it is the Samaritan. Came to where he was, so he puts himself in danger. He saw him, and then he had compassion. The good Samaritan really exposes the sinful prejudice of our hearts. The Jewish people, much like people today, had what we would call racism. Right? It's, 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 the word's not here, but the idea is obvious in the text. They looked at Samaritans with disdain, much in the way that people in our world look at people with other, other skin colors with disdain. They look at an individual and make assumptions that, oh, because you are this skin color, you must be like that. You are more likely to be a criminal or more likely to be this or that. And by the way, racism is a two-way street. People distrusting and uh, maligning people of different ethnicities for the simple and only reason they're part of a certain ethnicity. That's what was going on here. It was racist. It was evil. And by the way, let me just be very clear. Racism is sin. Racism is not something that we can just sort of say, ah, that's not a big deal. God hates racism. It is a violation of his law. It is ignoring the image of God in man. It shows up in many forms in our, in our world today. Some say, well, I shouldn't have interracial marriages. That's just bad. That, that's, an, that's a racist attitude that flies in the face of the fact that God has made us of one blood. The assumption that because someone is part of a group, they must be a certain way. Identity politics. That is racist and a, and a violation of the law of love. Let's make that clear. But the, the main point here, Jesus brings up a guy, makes a guy the hero of the story that everyone would expect to be the villain of the story. 
You see, what Jesus is doing here, he's not only illustrating, here's what neighbor love looks like, but he's also subtly pointing out to the lawyer that not only is there an absence of neighbor love, he actually has hatred and prejudice and discrimination in his heart, simply through the assumption that he thinks the Pharisee would, or the Samaritan would be the bad guy. To give you a sense of how much they hated the Samaritans, when the Jews in John 8 went to insult Jesus, and the next step after this, by the way, they're going to try to kill him. So John 8 ends with them trying to stone Jesus to death. They say, have we not said rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? It's like the ultimate insult for them would be, if we call Jesus a Samaritan, man, that's a horrible thing to say to him. That is how much disdain they had. That the Samaritan was used as a slur and as an insult. And Jesus says, Here, here's the hero of the story. Quite incredible, isn't it? Now, the key word here in this story is that word compassion. This is the one thing that differentiates him from the priest and the Levite. They came, they saw, all of them came and all of them saw, but they went over to the other side of the street. They turned away from the pain and suffering. He moved in toward it from a heart of compassion. This word compassion is a very, very strong word. It's this idea of even just the deepest part of your being being moved. For the Greeks, the idea of your kidneys, the, the reins, that's, that's the seat of the emotions. Jesus is talking about deep down pain and sympathy for the suffering of other people. And this is right in the middle of the story. In this paragraph, there are 68 words before the word compassion, and there are 67 words after. It's right here in the middle. This is the hinge on which the whole story turns. That word compassion, everywhere else in the Gospels that it is used, it is only used of Jesus and God the Father. Only use of Jesus and God the Father. In Luke 1, verse 78, we, we, we have described for us the tender mercies of our God. In Luke 7, and verse 13, it is Jesus who is moved with compassion. We never see the disciples moved with compassion. We never see the multitude moved with compassion. It's only Jesus. In Luke 15, in the story of the, uh, the prodigal son, the father, when he sees the son returning from it, he sees him a great way off, it says, he had compassion on him. Now, who is the father in the story? He represents God, the father. In Matthew chapter 9, we're told that Jesus sees the multitude and he is moved with compassion. Here's my point. This, this attribute of compassion is a Christ-like attitude. What Jesus is saying, I don't, he's not just saying, I want you to have sort of normal human pity, to be filled with the milk of human kindness. He's saying, I am calling you, neighbor love calls you to a Christ-like kind of compassion. Love requires that we be willing to feel. Now, we often hear preach from pulpits that love is action. And I say a hearty amen to that. But that does not mean that there is no sense of feeling in love. Love is not less than feeling. It is more than feeling. We say, well, I'm a, love is action. I'm just going to sort of dispassionately meet needs around me. Therefore, I'm loving. That's in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, I could give my body to be burned and give all my possessions to the poor and still be lacking love. Love is not less than sacrifice, but it is certainly more than sacrifice. It is not less than compassion, but it is certainly more than compassion. I'll be honest with you, I'm the kind of person where, I, man, I, don't, I, don't, I want to shelter my heart from feeling and from pain. Uh, C.S. Lewis pointed out that the only way to present your, prevent your heart from ever being crushed is to not love. All right, if you love someone, you are setting yourself up for heartbreak. 
So I'm going to love my spouse. One day they or you is going to die and you're going to be left in a place being absolutely shattered. So the only way to prevent yourself from being heartbroken is just to never love. And he said, we, you, can, you can shelter yourself from that, put yourself in a little box and isolate yourself from that. And ultimately we call that hell. So to love someone means you are going to feel pain. You are going to be heartbroken. Neighbor love is going to require that we be moved with compassion like Jesus was moved from compassion. Now, this is not something we gin up. Like, I'm going to try. I'm going to go onto Google Images and look at pictures of orphans in, in Burkina Faso or something like that and try to generate a feeling. The way we have compassion like this is to so know and love the heart of Christ that our hearts are moved by the things that move his heart. Right? The closer to Jesus we get, the more we will have his heart of compassion toward the world around us. And the things that will grieve us will be the things that grieve him. You know what grieves Jesus more than anything else? It is sin. We, our hearts will be moved with compassion towards those who are trapped in sin. And rather than sitting there being like, well, I would never do what they do, we say, what can I do to help rescue and deliver and point these people to the solution in Christ? The Samaritan illustrates for us what compassion looks like. It is so, so, e- so much easier to surround our hearts with a protective wall of callous assumptions about people than it is to actually expose our hearts to pain and grief and to live like Jesus. Now, I'm preaching to myself up here. You can put a big mirror. I'm preaching this to myself. Man, how far do we fall short of the standard? But now notice what the, the Samaritan does in verse 34. His compassion didn't just stop with feelings. Hey, you can be moved with compassion about the world around you and the needs of the nations and then never do anything or just like a status on Facebook or put a wristband on and be like, I support a cause. You've not actually done anything. He does something. He acts. The Samaritan, verse 34, went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. That was basically first aid in the first century. You know, you think about this wine, it's got some alcohol in it. It will be a cleansing agent, a disinfectant. Oil would have some kind of soothing effect on his wounds. And he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. That word took care is, is a hands-on kind of word. Here he is sitting beside the bed of this stranger that he found on the roadway that he scraped up off the road. Here he is keeping a nighttime vigil to make sure this guy is okay and that his needs are met. The Samaritan quite simply exposes our reluctance to act. How many of us would be willing to do this for a stranger? For someone who would be an enemy, assuming that the man on the roadway is Jewish, the Samaritan could have said, I'm not going to help that guy, he hates me. Why, Why would I invest my time, my money, my emotional energy to help someone who hates me? And yet, that's exactly what he does. He kindly puts the man on his own donkey, which means he's walking rather than riding the donkey. Verse 35, he does something else. It says, when he departs, he leaves two denarii. What's a denarii? Denarii is is basically one day's worth of wage. So he leaves two days' worth of wages to pay for this man's stay at the inn. According to research that's been done, this would be enough money to pay for about 24 days at the inn. That's a lot. That's a lot of money, a lot of time. It's be like, hey, I'm going to get this guy. I've never met a room down here at the Holiday Inn, and I'm going to pay for two weeks for it. And I'm also going to tell the innkeeper, any other expenses that come up, I'll pay you back. Man, talk about opening yourself up to being scammed. Innkeepers in the ancient world were not a trustworthy lot. They were super sketchy. They were often running prostitution rings out of the inns. They were often places where people were robbed, and all kinds of horrible things happened. Here he is sort of putting himself out there, saying, I'll do whatever it takes to meet this man's need, no matter how much it costs me. 
In essence, he signs a blank check for this man's needs to be met by the innkeeper. So here we have with the Good Samaritan. Let's just summarize what this man looks like. Here's a man who is willing to love a stranger who ostensibly hates him. He's willing to, ha- to love his enemy. Here's someone who is moved by compassion that he stooped down to the man's level, meeting his most pressing need. Here's an individual who meets needs around him at great expense to himself. Now, I understand this is not an allegory. that Jesus is telling a story with one main point, asking who's the neighbor. But I cannot help but seeing in the reflection of the Samaritan, not me, but Jesus. If I look at this and be like, yes, I'm the good Samaritan, you're missing the point of the story. We look at this, the good Samaritan, we should say, this guy's looking an awful lot like Jesus, moved with compassion. That's a word used only for Jesus. Sacrificing himself for others, that's Jesus. Meeting the greatest need, that's Jesus. And that's what he does for you and me on the cross. Not merely being an example, but atoning for our sins and meeting our need at great expense to himself and promising to return and to take care of every other need. I think it's impossible to not see Jesus in the Samaritan. The Samaritan's extraordinary love does not give us any kind of smug sense of self-justification. If you read it and say, yeah, I'm, I'm like the Samaritan, go back and read it again. Rather, it humbles us. It leaves us in a place where we realize God's standard is not just here, and I'm keeping it. No, God's standard is infinitely high, and I'm missing the mark wildly. If this is what the law requires, this do and you shall live, leaves me in a place where I'm utterly and totally condemned. Jesus in verse 36 asks this question, which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? So we got the priest. Was he a good neighbor? No, he walked away from the need. Was the Levite? Nope. Rather, it's the Samaritan. And he said, verse 37, the one who showed mercy on him. You notice he, he studiously avoids saying the Samaritan. This guy hates Samaritan so much he can't even say the Samaritan. The one who showed mercy on him. You can just sense the disdain. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Wow. This is the divine requirement. This, Jesus requires of you and me examination. He requires that you and I look at our own hearts and examine. Now, if you've you've maybe drifted away from the message, I want you to just come back in because this is so important. He requires every one of us examine our own hearts, our, our own lives. Have I lived up to the standard or have I lived in violation of it? You know what that means I am? It doesn't mean that I'm just imperfect or merely human. It means I am a rebel against God because God requires that I love like this. This question forces the lawyer and he forces us Which of these was neighbor? And by the way, Jesus, notice how he words the question, which one was neighbor? The the guy's original question that says, who is my neighbor? Jesus turns it around and says, the neighbor is not what someone else is. It's something that you ought to be. Neighbor is not just a noun that describes someone else. Neighboring is a verb, a way that I live towards the world around me. He says, you've got to be this neighbor by showing this kind of love, no matter the condition of of the people that you meet. Wow. Jesus requires not only examination, but he requires perfection. He's not just saying, hey, do this once or twice, and God will sort of cut you slack on the times that you failed. Go, and then the sense of this in the Greek is be doing this. 
as a way of life, every waking moment until the day you die, live like this. Listen, none of us do that. None of us have done that. He's requiring perfection. This is what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I meet people all the time where I ask, hey, if you were to die today, do you know for sure you would go to heaven? And be like, yeah, yeah, I hope so. Based on what? Well, I've, you know, I've been good. I'm, I'm, nobody's perfect, but I've been good. That is not the standard on Judgment Day. God's not going to call you up on Judgment Day and say, yeah, you did 51 good deeds and 49 bad deeds. We'll let you into heaven. No, we offend. We break the law at one point. We're guilty of all. This story leaves us in a place where we are absolutely in the dust and helpless and without any answer before the judgment bar of God. He requires perfection. Contrary to our assumptions, racial categories, and religious backgrounds in no way diminish our requirement to love our neighbors. Man, that's a, that's a high standard. Go do this and you will live. There's only one person in history who actually went and did this. It wasn't the lawyer. It wasn't even the Samaritan. We just get a snapshot of, of him in one instant. The only person who ever did this for their entire lives was Jesus Christ. The only one who ever loved neighbor as himself every millisecond of his life, it was Jesus. Loving his neighbors and his enemies and those who would reject him and walk away from him so much that he went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for you and for me. That's love. Love is not that I love God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the satisfaction for our sins. The measure of love is not how I feel about other people, but is rather what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. That's the standard. But I'd be remiss to point this out. Jesus does not merely require examination, be like, here's the standard. He does not merely require perfection. He requires transformation. There is a real sense that for those who have seen their sin and have fallen on their face before God and sought his mercy, have been born again and forgiven, this is how we're supposed to live. We live this way not because, by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, you know, that's an impossibility, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you're saved by faith and faith alone. The Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in our hearts and begins a work of transforming us. He puts a new nature in us, gives us a new heart, enabling you and me to begin loving our neighbors as ourselves. No, none of us do it perfectly all the time. But by God's grace, we can genuinely grow in our love for other people. Being a neighbor does not mean I just love humanity generally. It means I love individuals in particular. It means I meet needs that God brings across my path with the resources he's given to me. God's not granted you and me the resources to go out and solve poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. But maybe he has granted you the resources to help your literal next-door neighbor. He has granted you the resource to point other people to Jesus. We can only love like Jesus if we have been loved by Jesus. We can only love like Jesus if we have been born again. We can only love like Jesus if we have been indwelt by his spirit. And there is no surer sign that you have been born into the kingdom of God than that you are growing in love to your neighbor. It might mean tutoring a struggling student on your street, or babysitting for an overwhelmed parent, or sitting down and listening to a lonely widow. Maybe it means meeting a genuine financial need. Maybe it means being a foster parent or adopting. 
Maybe it means quietly meeting a need of a coworker and being like, I'm going sure, to do this anonymously for God's glory. Maybe it means telling someone else about Jesus Christ and bringing them with you to church and opening your home up. It's going to take a thousand different forms because there are a thousand different needs that, we, that cross our paths in a given week. But the call is unmistakable. Go and do thou likewise. Will you love your neighbors? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes.